So we're in Joshua. Um, this, is a, this is the third week that we've been in this series, uh, Courage for the Battles. And last week we were looking at this moment when Moses dies. And uh, after Moses dies, that is the moment that the curse of the previous generation, because of their disobedience, is lifted and a blessing is given to Joshua and to this next generation beneath. And they're ready. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And we saw that the promised land is about more than just land. This is God's turf, Yahweh's turf. And actually, it's pointing forward to a time when another great leader will die. And after that great leader dies, a new kingdom advances. And we are invited into that kingdom to receive blessing. And so really what we're looking at when we look at the promised land, and we look at the book of Joshua, which means Jesus. And we know that that name means that God saves We're looking at a type, a type that will come in the future in Jesus himself, a salvation moment when they cross over the Jordan, this formidable river that's in the way to get into the land, and they fight these battles that are ahead of them, and they claim the land that is theirs in God. And actually, we've still got battles to fight as well, don't we? So we have received this glorious inheritance. We've received this wonderful gospel, this good news about Jesus, which means that we can now walk in the kingdom of God. We can walk in his ways by the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. But it's not until Jesus returns that we'll get to live in that new creation, that glorious promised land. And so... Uh, really, when we look at these battles, we have an opportunity to say, well, there's a parallel here, isn't there? What battles have we got to fight? What spiritual battles are going on in our lives? What ground is God giving us to take in our personal lives, at work, uh, in our families, in all the different places that God has placed us as we fight the battles that God has for us? And actually, we can get so much encouragement from Joshua. So this morning we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 2 and it's this incredible chapter that if you didn't know the book of Joshua you might think hmm I'm not I did not expect this story. It's a story about a woman called Rahab a prostitute in Jericho and it is just inspirational to look at this great woman's faith. And see how God worked through her. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, Let me read from Joshua chapter 2. And I'm going to read all the way through from verse 1 to verse 24. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here to tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me. 
but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of, a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, I will sh- uh, that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them. And that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she had lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother your sister brothers and all of them into your house if any of them go outside your house into the street their blood will be on their own heads we will not be responsible as for those who are in the house with you their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there for three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told them everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Father, thank you so much for this this great story. Lord, help us to see how we are all like Rahab. But Lord, in many ways, we are like Rahab in that we have prostituted ourselves instead of glorifying you the way that we were made to. But you have shown us great mercy and kindness and goodness. And Lord, although we have been destined for judgment, you have shown us grace. You have shown us mercy. 
Lord, I pray that this morning we would see your kindness at work. Father, would you reveal yourself afresh in our hearts. God, would you bring us life from your word. Amen. So the first great obstacle was the Jordan. But God had told Joshua that as soon as they were given safe passage to the other side, that they were going to advance towards these ferocious Amorites and take the land. Now, the first of the Amorite peoples they would have to face were the Canaanites. And they had this great city that was a fortress. And they would have been able to see it, this great city, sitting on this hill with all its defences and its great walls. And so they think, well, let's send some spies and see what the lay of the land is. Let's send some spies. Let's, let's get strategic about this. It's interesting, isn't it? I think some people would look at this passage and think, yeah, but God said he's going to give it to them. Why are they sending spies? Why are they doing that? Are they doubting their faith in God? I don't think so. I think when we are certain that God is going to do something, we do not remove ourselves totally from the equation. We don't leave our wisdom at the door and act like fools. If God says to you, I'm going to do this for you, that doesn't mean, all right, cool, I'm just going to shut the door behind me in my bedroom and go for a snooze. That's not how it works. God loves to use us. And he loves it when we are thinking through and praying through what God has called us to do. And that is what Joshua does here. And so he sends out these spies to work out what what is going on in the city. How might we work out uh, how to attack? And we too need to be strategic, don't we? So being responsible with what God has given us to do. So God's given us this great task. This mighty work to do this gospel work as we advance in Glasgow. And it doesn't say, oh well, don't worry, you don't need to be strategic. You, you don't need to think about what you're doing. It doesn't say, you know, you, the team, all the guys at Glasgow Grace, you don't really need to think about what you're doing. Because like, it'll, it'll all just happen. That's not how it works. Actually, it is God's work and he's doing it. But he calls us to come along on the journey. I love the way Paul describes it. So he's talking about how he wants to present everyone fully mature in Christ. And he says this. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works on me or in me. You see that? So it's, I'm going to give it my all, but I'm going to give it my all in the power and the strength of God. And I think that's what Joshua is doing here. So he sent the spies. He's working out what's going on in the city. And now the word for spies here can actually be used in two different ways. So one is the obvious one. You're going to go and spy on the land, check out what's going on. See if you can obtain any information that will help you before you go into battle. But the other one is actually to give people a message. And I think that's what's happening here. He's doing, they're doing both. These spies do both things. We see later in 2 Samuel 15, when Absalom sends secret messengers to let his allies know when to proclaim him as king. And so they're sent to give messages, not only to obtain information. 
And actually, that's what the spies do, isn't it? They go to get information, to bring back to Joshua, but they also go to tell this faithful worshipper of God, Rahab, who turns to God in this moment and says uh, uh, to give her a message of hope. And actually, that's what we have to do too. We have to go with a message that is full of hope, that is full of love and kindness and mercy and grace, but we actually also should be going Yes, to obtain information, to be strategic, to think about how we might best proclaim the gospel and to bring warnings. We need to warn people of what's about to come. And actually, that's a, that's a kind thing to do, to warn people of what's to come. Have, have you seen the uh, cancer research advert that's been going about this week? just had loads of backlash it's about obesity and uh, so they're basically saying look obesity is this huge cause of cancer and so they're trying to raise awareness of that and there's been this massive backlash because people are offended so I think well you, you can't do that that's not fair that and people are offended but the truth is People need to know if there's something effect, that's affecting them now that could cause them harm, right? And actually, it's a kindness to let people know that, to educate people in that. And actually, that's what we've got to do too. It's a kindness to share the gospel. It's a kindness to share the gospel, not only this glorious message of hope, but it's also a warning, isn't it? That if you don't turn to God, then... Hell awaits. I mean, nobody likes to say that anymore, do they? Nobody likes to talk about that. But actually, that's the truth. This passage is about putting your faith in God, no matter who you are, and Him saving you from judgment that you deserve, and being gifted a place in the family instead. It's not about whether or not Rahab's deceitfulness was given God's approval or not. But we will deal with that because I think it's fascinating. And then uh, what we're really going to focus on, though, is uh, three things. The who of salvation, the how of salvation, and the now what of salvation. Okay, so the who of salvation. Let's begin with that. I was getting my hair cut the other day. Uh, I was in the barber's on this great chat uh, with my barber. And he was telling me all about his plans, about how he wants to get this mobile hairdressing unit started. Fascinating. Thought, great idea. He wants to turn up at festivals and um, do it in events going on around the city, all that kind of thing. Oh, that's a great idea. Nice business model. Like it. Then he gets on to, hey, um, what do you do? Now, this is always fascinating. I mean, some people just don't want to talk about it at all, they just move the conversation on immediately. Some people are like, wow, that's weird. <laughs> Let's talk about how weird you are. And, uh, and some people are, are just fascinated to hear that new churches are being born. And so I'm explaining to him. And one of the things I like to say when I'm explaining this to people is that what we really want to do here is help people see that this isn't about religion. This isn't about doing good works. This, we're not calling people to come and hear about how to be a good person. 
We're calling people to come and hear about how they can be saved by the grace of God and brought into relationship with him. And so I'm explaining this to him. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's brilliant, man. I love that. I love that. It's so cool because, yeah, it's really just about being a good person, isn't it? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. And I explain it again. And he says, yeah, man, yeah, 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 get it, get it. So, um, yeah, you just, it's about morals, isn't it? Like, we just want to be good moral people. Love what the church does. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. And honestly, I think I explained it six times to this poor guy. And in the end, I'm pretty sure he's still going to get it. Like, it's just, this is so alien to people. Because you earn stuff in life. It doesn't come free. And actually... If we're honest, I think the church has done a disservice in many ways in the way that we portray ourselves in society. Instead of portraying grace and love, kindness and mercy, we often portray what we're against. And that says rules. And then that says to people, well, Christianity is obviously just about morals. And of course, we know that that's not at the heart of it at all. It's interesting, the spies get found out and they go to Rahab's house to a brothel used by travellers that Rahab owns and runs. So Rahab is a prostitute, a madam. She's running the brothel. And because it's a place where travellers might be expected to go, it's thought that the spies probably went there because it's a great place to hide. Okay, well, that's a natural place to go. Let's go there and hide. And one of the great representations that we have to remember here about God's relationship with us is good sex in the context of marriage. Throughout scripture, sex inside of marriage is used as a symbol of God's intimate and holy love for us. It's a key act that's reserved for one another as a picture of God's unreserved love for us. And union with his true bride, his church. And so it must be kept undefiled and holy. And at this point, marriage and sex was was so closely related to the covenant promise that God has with Israel. This one God idea and monogamy, this idea that we're supposed to be with one person and have sex only with them in our lifetime. And then here we are with this woman, this prostitute. This woman has probably slept with hundreds of men. This woman has probably slept with lots of married men. This woman has been arranging for lots of men to have sex with the women in her brothel. So she might seem like quite a surprising character for God to choose here in Joshua 2. And not only was Rahab a prostitute, but she came from a polytheistic background. That's a multi-God-worshipping culture. They worship many gods. And that couldn't be more opposed to the revelation of who Yahweh is and the calling of God on the people of Israel. This is the, the God who revealed himself to Abraham as, I am the one and only the only God, there is no other God besides me. This is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. None. 
Jesus said the most important commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Hmm. Rahab seems a surprising choice. And she's also an Amorite. One of these tribes which is part of the Amorites. This larger group uh, across the promised land. And it's a term used for these tribes who have been pushing back against God and his people for more than 400 years on God's turf. God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Yet here is Rahab, an Amorite prostitute, has been worshipping many gods right at the heart of the story when God is about to give the Israelites this Eden-like promised land. Flowing with milk and honey. What's going on? She says this. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. That's a worship statement. That's a declaration of who God is. Because whenever those two terms are used together in the Old Testament. So when it talks about heavens and the earth. In the one statement, it doesn't just mean oh, this little tribe over here or this part of this land or this land over here or what we can see from, uh, from horizon to horizon. It doesn't mean that. It means everything. It means every star. It means every piece of land. It means every created thing. It means everything. Every single thing. And she's saying... All these gods that we've been worshipping, nonsense. All this stuff that I've been doing, nonsense. I'm, about, I'm willing to give it all up to follow your God, to have a new beginning in your God, because I know that your God is the God of all gods. I know that your God is King of kings. I know that your God is Lord of lords. I know that there is no one other than Yahweh. Wow. And in verse 11, she recognises that what makes the Israelites strong is not their number, not their armies, not their battle courage, it's their God. And that is why we should never write anyone off from coming to faith in Jesus. Who do you believe in your life could never come to faith? Be honest with yourself. I don't want you to answer out loud, but be honest with yourself. Who do you look at in your life and think, nah, Beyond the pale, they're not going to be saved. Would you have written off Rahab? If we're all honest, we're tempted to do this all the time. We have faith for some people coming to faith and not others. But when we do that, we make the mistake that Rahab, Rahab did not make. We aren't looking to God and his unstoppable grace in that moment. We don't describe the God of the Bible whose arm is not too short to save, who has a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. When we look to God, we must not ever disregard him and his power to save. Maybe you've written off people from Muslim backgrounds. 
Maybe it's a boss who you've been horrible who's been horrible to you for years. And seems like anytime you raise anything about your faith, they just scoff. Maybe it's a grumpy neighbour who doesn't even want to say hi to you because he knows you're a Christian. What about Neds? Did you ever, ever call people Neds? If you use that term, I think you're in grave danger of having a problem in self-righteousness. It's demeaning. Especially when we think that most people think that it means non-educated delinquent. I mean, just think about that for a moment. You're calling a whole group of people non-educated delinquents. I mean, that couldn't get more middle-class self-righteous, could it? Guys, we need to be culturally different as Christians. We need to realise that no one is beyond God's grace. And actually there's a huge problem if we start to think that some are because then we view our salvation as something natural when it's actually totally supernatural. God stepped in, he grabbed hold of your heart and he transformed it, he turned it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. You did not do that. You being good or your background, whatever it might be that you might attest to some of your faith, not true. God, before the beginning of time, made it so. I was chatting to a church in Scotland minister, a guy called Mark, a couple of months ago. And he's a friend of a friend and just an all-round good guy. And he was telling me he was about to appoint another elder in his church. And you think, well, that's no big deal. But what's so cool about this story is that Mark, about 15 years ago, was a heroin addict. And Jesus just grabbed hold of his life. Now he's this minister of Mary Hill, doing a great job, just full of passion and love for God. And the other guy who he uh, ordains as an elder, uh, just about a month and a half ago now, uh, he also was a heroin addict. And uh, here they have, I think they have three elders, two of them recovering addicts. Guys, God can do anything with anyone. Don't look at people in the street or don't look at people in certain areas and think, well, they can never really be big game changers in the kingdom of God. These guys are game changers in the kingdom of God in Mary Hill. We want more of that, don't we? We want people in here who we would never have expected to ever come to faith, who come to faith because Jesus did it. And because we look to God and we go, oh God, you can do anything. No one is too far gone to embrace the love of God. God chose mercy to Rahab. A polytheist, a prostitute, a madam, an enemy and a squatter in God's land. That takes us to the how of salvation. So what is the how of salvation? Well, the first big thing to notice about Rahab's bold faith is this. She feared God. After hiding the spies and getting rid of the soldiers at great danger to herself, she heads up onto the roof and peers in at the spies under the slacks and says this. I know that the Lord has given you this land and a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country 
are melting in fear because of you. Now, I think the fear she describes of the people is, is not all what we might call a, a healthy fear of God. But she proves that she has a healthy fear of God versus this just terrified of God feeling. So there's a difference, isn't there? So we can be terrified of God and still not see his kindness and love and bow down to him and say, God, I just want to be, I want to be your child. We could look to him and just fear him and run in the opposite direction. And I think that's what most of the Amorites do. They, they look to God, they see him coming, they see what he's doing through his people, this mighty God, the one God, this Yahweh who's coming to take his land, to claim it for himself. And they know that God is offering them to come and join with them in worship to God. And most of them say, no thanks. I am terrified of you. But no thanks. I'd rather run away, be terrified from me, uh, terrified uh, from you, and just run off. But Rahab, Rahab gets it. Rahab gets that God isn't just to be someone to be terrified of, but God also is kind. She says, you are God, the only infinite and all-powerful being, and I am finite and weak. And even though I have set my life up as an enemy of yours, as I look to you as a God who shows kindness to people that's undeserved. She gets that from the story of the Exodus, from the defeat of the Amorites, some of whom are now joined with the Israelites in their camp who have obviously had faith in God and joined with them. She gets that God is kind. She gets that God is just, but also that he's kind. Verse 12. Now then. So in light of all that she said about the revelation of who God is, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family. She gets it. God is awesome, all-powerful, infinite. And we are weak and finite, but he is kind. Yes, he's just, but he's merciful. The temptation here now is to jump straight to uh, the red cord. Now, if you've read this passage before, if you've heard much about this passage before, there's a lot said about the red cord. Because they come up with this plan, don't they? They come up with a plan for the spies to get out of the land through the hill country and stay there for three days and then get back over the Jordan to safe back to the Israelites. And then they make a plan for Rahab to be spared when God's judgment comes upon Jericho. And the spies say, hang out this red cord from your window and we will know that we should pass over that household. Anyone in that household will be spared. And we have two passages that we can go to that will really help us here. There's one near the end of Genesis where Tamar, the prostitute, gives birth to twins. And one of the twins is about to be born and out comes Hand. Okay, here, here comes the first baby. So the midwife wraps this red cord around the wrist. 
Because firstborn, that's what they did. But then what happens is that child goes back in and then out comes the other child. And so why did they put a red cord on the firstborn? Well, here's a really interesting link. That actually, when God brings judgment on Egypt, on the firstborn, they are to take an unblemished lamb, slaughter it, take the blood, wipe that blood over their doorframe, and the judgment of God will pass over, the angel of death will pass over and not harm that household. Again, there's evidence that some, not many, but some of the Egyptians may have taken that advice on as well. Which I find fascinating. And so, we've got this firstborn thing going on in judgment and in blessing. And so when this red cord is to come out of the window of this of Rahab's house we have these two signs of God's blessing as if she is receiving the firstborn inheritance of an Israelite that's huge and in judgment so that's the blessing and then in judgment she is not going to perish but the angel of death, this time the armies of Israel, will not go into her house and destroy her house and her family. And the Exodus has this clear, clear link with what God came to do through Jesus. Because when Jesus came along, here came the Lamb of God, take away the sin of the world because that judgment was just God is just the Amorites were given 400 years to repent Rahab repented and the judgment passes over her and instead she gets blessing and that ultimately happens not because God decides to be unjust with some and just with others but because God himself Jesus Christ goes to the cross as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and receives the punishment that we deserve. Because he absorbs the punishment that we deserve. He then gives us righteousness. And so now we receive the blessing of first son inheritance. So if you're sat here today and you say, I believe in Jesus, you have received the inheritance of God as a son or daughter who receives all the inheritance. And in heaven it's waiting for you. And so one day you will receive it in full and you've already received it in part. Isn't that glorious? Rahab should not have received this. If this was anything to do with our works... We would not receive it just like Rahab. And we need to put ourselves in the place of Rahab. We need to see that we are Rahab. You are a defiled prostitute. 
Jesus rescued you and brought you in and wiped away all the sin and all the shame. Imagine how much shame she would have received from this misogynistic, disgusting culture. No one chooses to be a prostitute. Your shame is removed as well as your sin. Anything anyone's ever done to you that is evil and wrong, God removes that from you. He removed it from Rahab, and Rahab got this new beginning in God. Okay, here's the now what of salvation. I got a bit carried away there, so we're just going to go quickly through this, okay? The now what of salvation. Rahab puts herself at great rescue. I mean, there is no way that she's going to be able to deceive the king of Jericho for very long. They're going to find out soon. And so she is willing to put her faith in action straight away. Her faith is on display here. And actually we see that in James 2, 24 and 26. It says this, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Her faith, her genuine faith, given by God as a free gift, is evidenced in her faith in action. So in other words, if you've really received faith, you'll start to change. You'll start to see that God does incredible things through you. That your heart is changing. That your faith moves to action. Now that doesn't mean that suddenly you're going to be like Moses tomorrow. But it it does mean that over the period of your life you'll see that fruit will come because you are truly planted in God. And that's what we see here straight away with Rahab. She puts her faith into action. Now, this faith that she puts in action is messy. And it's complicated. And actually we could probably oversimplify this passage here. But let's just be really clear about a couple of things. Okay, One is she does tell lies. And God seems to bless that. Lie one. I didn't know they were Israelites. Lie two. They've already gone. Lie three. I don't know where they could be found. Lie four. If you leave immediately you can catch up with them. She lies quite a lot. In this passage. So there's no getting around it. This hero of faith lies. Now although she does, what she does is brave. She deceives the soldiers. Who are trying to pursue the spies. Now what we could say at this point. Is that the passage is not really about Rahab's mora- morality. Which is true. Uh, it's about God's salvation. And it's about how God rescues his people. Amen. But I would also like to give a little bit of explanation to this because I think we probably all want to know, don't we? It's all right for us to say, well, God doesn't lie and we must follow in the character of God and image bear him and say, well, we cannot lie. But actually messy situations come around 
and we have some moral questions to ask that just make this a lot messier than maybe we would like it to be. Let me ask you a few rhetorical questions just to get us thinking, okay? Is it ethical to put a burglar alarm box on your house as if you have a burglar alarm, but you don't really to deceive the burglars? You're on your way to hospital with a passenger who has a high fever. When you're 10 minutes away, they become so ill that they pass out and you're worried that they stop breathing. Do you, A, drive at the speed limit and park in a designated space and pay for parking? B, drive with an urgency that takes you over the speed limit and drive straight to the A&E door? Or C, phone an ambulance, which you know will take at least 10 minutes longer than it would take you to get there, to get you uh, there, and that would be the very best you could do. I mean, I'm just going to tell you what I'd pick. I'd pick B. Like, drive fast, get them there as quickly as you can, park wherever you need to park, get them into any as quickly as you most possibly can. Break all the rules. Should the Allies have deceived Hitler and the Nazis as to the whereabouts of the Normandy invasion? Have you ever doubted them for that? Have you ever said, oh, that's terrible, they should not have done that, that is immoral, irreprehensible? No, like, that they deceived, but they did it for good. Now, I am not saying that we should all go and lie. I'm not saying you should lie to your partner about where the presents are hidden. Okay? If there's no need for it, then we don't do it. But I do, I am suggesting that there might be times in your life where people's lives are in danger, in danger, um, in the messiness of being on mission with drug addicts, with people who are being pursued and chased down, that actually people who are being abused, th- there's probably times in which you need to deceive people in a godly way. Now, I would look for every opportunity not to do it. But I think we actually have a precedent here, and we also have a precedent in Exodus 1. The midwives, the Egyptian midwives, deliberately deceive Pharaoh and all his servants and tell them that the the Israelite women are different to the Egyptian women and uh, they give birth before they can even get there. And so, oh, sorry, we didn't kill the firstborn like we were supposed to. They're just telling lies. But God blesses it. Now, again, let me just reiterate this. I think if at all possible we don't. But there is possibly a conscious kind of um, moment where, there are different moments where actually God would say to us in in your conscience what's the right thing to do. So it's the right thing to do to protect life, isn't it? So Rahab had a choice. Do I protect life or do I deceive? And she deceived. And I would say God blessed her for doing it. Because it was an act of faith. Does God bless the lies? I don't know. Possibly not. But I think what he does do is he blesses the faith that is in action there. That's one to talk about over lunch. So, here's what I, I want us to go away with. I want us to go away with this. Not that we can tell lies sometimes. I'm not saying that, <laughs> by the way. Just to be clear. What I want us to go away with is this. 
that there is no person, no one, who is beyond the reach of God's grace. If there's someone in your life that think, oh man, they're just gone, like there's no point in even trying anymore. Get on your knees, repent, and ask God to reveal himself to you again. I want us to see the higher of salvation, and that is that only through the blood of Jesus can we be given mercy, kindness, and grace. He was so good to us. He came and he died for us so that we could be set free forever and ever. The mercy of God is so good. And I also want us to see that our faith should be an action. Our faith shouldn't just be something that happens to us and then we just kind of come to church whenever we can and, and you know, then we eventually we die and we go to heaven. No, 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 no. You're now given this task to join with the mission of God like Rahab does in Egypt. She joins with, she said, I trust in God for a new beginning and I'm going to go with the Israelite people on this new mission to uh, inhabit the land. And actually, do you know what's remarkable? She ends up in the genealogies of the New Testament. This foreigner, this prostitute, how can that be? Because God is merciful and gracious and good. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you did come on this wonderful rescue mission for us. That ultimately when we read the Rahab story, we, we see you, Jesus. We see you saving us, people like Rahab. People who don't deserve to be saved, but you save us anyway out of your great kindness and mercy. And so, Lord, would that inspire us? Would that give us so much faith in what you can do? If you can save one of us, you can save anyone out there. And so, God, we pray that in your power, you would come and bring great salvation across Glasgow. Lord, we pray that we get to be a part of that, that in the coming years, we would see more and more people who you would just, not, people would just look at and go, no way, they'll never become a Christian. They'll never declare Jesus as Lord. They'll never say, he is the most important person to me in my life and I'm going to worship him forever and ever. Oh, Father, would we see countless come to faith and be baptized in this church and in all the other churches around this great city who preach and glorify your name, Jesus. Father, come help us, we pray. Help us to see that you are so much greater than we can ever imagine. In your name, Jesus. Amen.